in your divine purpose, your perfect plan for each of our lives. But we are here because this is exactly where you have ordained us to be. And with that knowledge, and indeed with that conviction, we look to you with a great and holy anticipation that as we open up your word tonight to hear it taught, to hear it proclaimed, we pray, Lord, that none of us will hear it in vain, but that we will hear it by the power of the Holy Spirit, opening our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word this evening, opening our hearts to receive it, to receive it by faith and to receive it unto obedience. To receive it, we pray, Lord, with greater sanctification being wrought in our lives because of the truth of your holy word. We trust in you with all our hearts for such a work of your grace this night for the sake and the honor of Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. And amen. Well, I invite you to take God's word and let's turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to begin reading at verse 1 to verse 8 as we consider tonight what I have called trusting God without limits. Trusting God without limits. Now, if perhaps you might be wondering as to why we are not continuing in what has been our proverbial thematic exposition for the last two weeks on parenting, it's because this week I've been deliberately taking a writing sabbatical and what I've got to finish up for my new book. And so I didn't want us to go out of Proverbs. So we're still in Proverbs, but we're going back a ways, all the way back to chapter 3 tonight. And uh, this teaching um, for a very, very small minority of you, you have heard this, but the majority of you, you've never heard this. So it's all new and fresh uh, to you. So Proverbs 3, starting at verse 1 and reading to verse 8. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your 
bones. And so reads God's infallible, inerrant, authoritative word. As we return to our ongoing series in Proverbs, this evening I want to draw us back to what is perhaps the most cherished and well-known portion of the entire book, which is chapter 3. The general theme of this chapter can be captured in the descriptive, the wholehearted disciple, or to say it another way, a picture of thoroughgoing godliness. Where Proverbs chapter 2 helps you to see the way in which God's wisdom works as a moral stabilizer, here in Proverbs chapter 3, you begin to see the outworking of God's wisdom in a life wholly committed to Him. In other words, Proverbs chapter 3 shows us what a godly life looks like in step with God's wisdom. Now, for our study tonight, I want us to unpack the first eight verses in Proverbs 3 with much attention given to verses 5 and 6. The focus of these two verses is due to the fact that, first of all, they sum up the crux of this entire chapter. But second of all, they are the most quoted passage in Proverbs and thereby the one passage which Christians are most familiar with from this book. Yet, it is because of how familiar we are with Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6 that we can inadvertently miss the real meaning of the text. So we'll draw in closer there than the rest of the verses we'll consider in this study. But for our study, on the whole, I want us to see how a thoroughgoing godliness is marked by first, a mindful obedience, second, a boundless trust, and third, a Godward humility. So let's notice first a mindful obedience. Reading verses 1 through 4 of Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. In what way do we obey God? This is the very practical question which Proverbs chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 presses on us. And the answer we find to this question is expressed by the verbs employed both negatively and positively. The focus in these verses is on the teaching which is the Torah or instruction issued by the father to his son that when unpacked spills out into commandments. These commandments are personified steadfast love and faithfulness, which both refer to God's own character, which his people will image forth as the fruit of their obedience to him. But tying all this together are verbs which show us in what way we do obey God's commandments. First, we're exhorted in verse 1, do not forget 
my teaching. Do not forget my teaching. To not forget is to not lay aside or be oblivious, insensible, unmindful, or unheeding to what the Lord has instructed us to do. We see the same exhortation in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, where we're commanded to be doers of the word and not hearers only. In other words, don't be a mere auditor of God's word. James furthers this exhortation by an illustration of what we're not to be. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Is this how we treat God's word? Is this how we respond to his teaching and commandments? We see it, we read it, we hear it, but then we walk away from it, forgetting everything we're just exposed to. We've laid it aside, mindless to what we've read and heard. As the father exhorts his son in Proverbs 3 and verse 1, so the Lord is exhorting us, do not forget my teaching. Be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer. Second, still in verse 1, we're also called to let your heart keep my commandments. Let your heart keep my commandments. By the word translated keep, we're being told to obey to guard, to protect, to maintain. This word carries the idea of meticulously watching over with careful attention. We see this same Hebrew word in Proverbs 13 and verse 3. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. If we're not careless, thoughtless, or reckless with our words, we'll preserve our well-being. So then to keep God's commandments is to obey them with watchful care and wholehearted attention, seizing upon the full scope of all God is demanding of our life in devotion to Him. Hence, we keep His commandments with our heart. That is, with all that we are. With all that we are. Third, we read in verse 3, that when it comes to the teaching and commandments of the Lord as they flesh out in His steadfast love and faithfulness, we're to bind them around our neck and write them on the tablet of our heart. This is very rich poetical language, imagery, expressing both the inward and outward life of God's people living in obedience to Him. These two images show us that a life devoted to God, that is, a godly life, is not a private faith. It is not a private faith. Without shame or apology, we wear God's steadfast love and faithfulness for all to see because it's the fruit of who we are at the core of our heart where God's commandments are written. So in what way then do we obey God based on Proverbs 3, 1 through 4? Our obedience to the Lord is with the whole heart for all to see without chagrin or stigma or self-reproach. 
Moreover, it is obedience that is mindful, that is intentional, and not forgetful. One last comment to make, however, before we leave this part of our study. Notice in verses 2 and 4 the benefits of our obedience. The benefits. Solomon writes, he says, For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. On the surface, these benefits or incentives to obeying God sound, frankly, too good to be true. Are we to take from this that obedience to the Lord will always result, always, in a trouble-free, prosperous life where not only God's favor will be with us, but even man's favor will follow us wherever we go? Is that what we're to take from this? How exactly are we to interpret these words? Clearly, God's word nowhere advocates the so-called prosperity gospel, which is nothing more than cold-hearted materialism in religious disguise. That heresy cannot be forced into this text. Rather, comparing Scripture with Scripture, these words bespeak of the abundant life promised by Christ our Lord in John 10 and verse 10, which he came to give his people. This life is what 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 promise and assert, that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption of of the world because of sinful desire. So then, these benefits of obedience recorded in Proverbs 3, verses 2 and 4 are benefits which refer, as Bruce Walke rightly notes, to abundant life in fellowship with the eternal and living God. And while such a life here and now can and does reap at times favor in the eyes of man, as verse 4 does indicate, and we witness Joseph in Egypt, for instance, after he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, or even the early church in Acts 2, 47, having favor with all the people in Jerusalem. Okay, so there can be that in moments in time. However, this kind of favor is never promised by God to last all our days on this side of glory. Because remember this promise, and this is indeed a promise, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, whoever desires to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Whoever desires to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's a promise. That is a guarantee. And so we must always remember that on the other side of what we read here in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 4. So we don't interpret this text with what we could say is a mechanical, hard literalism. We have to tie these benefits in with the rest of Scripture as it reveals eternal life in Jesus Christ. Moving forward now to our next major point from Proverbs 3. 
Let's consider what I'm calling a boundless trust. A boundless trust. This major point in our study gets us to the very heart of Proverbs chapter 3 as a whole. And of course, as I said earlier, this is the most familiar passage in the entire book of Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Charles Bridges described this text as the polar star for every child of God. The polar star. It is without question the most famous verses recorded in Proverbs as I've just mentioned. But what is it that we're actually being told here? Okay, The crux of the teaching in Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6 has all to do with how we as God's people trust God. How we trust God. And specifically, I'll break it down in three ways. First, it is an exclusive trust. It is an exclusive trust. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. The he, this Hebrew verb translated trust is most important to our understanding. It is a term which has the same root with an Arabic verb that means to throw oneself down on one's face, to lie helplessly down in complete reliance. It also points to the idea of absolute confidence, which is associated with a strong sense of firmness and solidity. But where and to whom are we to show such unreserved, limitless, unconditional trust? Well, Proverbs 3, 5 makes it very plain. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. No one else in our life, no one, is to have our total confidence, sense of security, and absolute certainty but the Lord. The full weight of everything we hope now and for life eternal can only be supported by the Lord. This is how blunt and simple it is to trust God. A.W. Tozer explained it this way in contrast to a false faith. He wrote this. A phony faith always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam stood up on the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted in him. So with everything we fear... With everything that shames us or holds us back, we throw it all on the Lord, trusting Him for His will, His ways, and order to work it out for our good. Like Hernando Cortez in the year 1519 on the shores of the Yucatan telling his soldiers to burn the ships against all odds they faced 
at the hands of the Aztecs. Our trust in the Lord has that kind of unconditional resolve. There's no other option we're hoping for if God doesn't come through. No, the Lord alone is the sole object of all our trust, period. So we say to all other apparent options that would seek to win our faith, burn the ships. Our trust is in the Lord alone. Our trust is in the Lord alone. We trust no other. We trust no other with the whole of our life. Second, not only is it an exclusive faith, it is an entire faith. It is an entire faith. How much do we trust the Lord with? Solomon says, with all your heart. There's nothing half-hearted about our trust in the Lord. With everything we are, with every fiber of our mind, body, and soul, we trust in Him no matter what people or circumstances tell us to the contrary. In fact, to clarify just how full our faith in God is to be, notice the negative exhortation in the second clause of our text. And do not lean on your own understanding. So here's the essence of our trust in the Lord. We do not give any weight whatsoever to our own understanding as to the course we're to take in any part of our life. This means that any personal insight, opinions, or clever ideas we may have or come up with are not to be a crutch. They are not to be a crutch we lean upon for life support. All our weight, all our weight for what we trust and hope in life is entirely settled on the Lord in no other it is an entire faith. Entire faith. With all your heart and thereby not leaning, not leaning, not putting any of your weight on your own understanding. Third, it is an exhaustive faith. It is an exhaustive faith. Not only exclusive, not only entire. Look at verse 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him. In all your ways, acknowledge him. By the term ways, we must understand this referring to all our journeys in life as a whole. Despite the circumstances or people or places associated with where we might be at any given time in our life. Okay, In all your ways, in all your ways we do what? We acknowledge the Lord. We acknowledge the Lord. Now, this term, acknowledge, is actually a weak translation of the Hebrew word used here. The word is yada, which is the Hebrew term for the most intimate knowledge one may have of another. In this context, we're being exhorted to Staying in ever constant communion and fellowship with God. It's what we read, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, as to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. 
For the believer in Christ, our lives should be clearly marked as a people of prayer. A people in whose lives the spirit of prayer is constant. And if, of course, we're trusting God with all our hearts, putting no support in our own understanding, then it is only expected that our lives will be in never-ceasing communion with the Lord, fellowshipping, communing with Him in all our ways. But what is the benefit of such boundless trust in the Lord as described here in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6? Well, the second clause of verse 6 tells us quite plainly, And He will, that's the Lord, He will make straight your paths. Now, what does that mean? He will make straight your paths. By a wholehearted reliance on the Lord in everything, the fruit we'll see is a life lived in greater obedience to Him. The term make straight is used here in an ethical sense. Okay? This is, this, this, this is an ethical word. It means to make one's life upright. That is, not bending or going out of the bounds of God's commands. But notice, notice very clearly, it is the Lord who makes us upright in our paths. The Lord makes us upright in our paths. So what is this telling us? Well, this is telling us very clearly, this is not moralism. This is not moralism. This, 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 is, this is not about what we can do if we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try harder. No. The life described in this passage is a life born again. It is a life indwelt by the Holy Spirit, by whose power, by whose power, according to Ezekiel 36, 27, by whose power God causes us to walk in his statutes, whereby we're careful and watchful to obey his rules. Now, where you would see this in the New Testament, okay, Ezekiel 36, 27, what that promises is what we see in the exhortation in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 3, Chapter 2, actually, in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul exhorts, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? But does God leave you by yourself? Does he leave you alone to work it out? No. Because what does the very next verse say? Paul says, For, or better because, it is God who is at work in you. God is at work in you. And, and, and what is God working in you? He's working in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Very simply, brothers and sisters, the Christian life is a supernatural life. It's a supernatural life. This is not a life that you just get up one day, one day in the morning you just decide, oh, you know what, I, I, think I'll, I think I'll live the Christian life today. And you just go and decide to do it. That's not how it works. 
That is not how it works. God calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He saves you by the blood and righteousness of his son. Every bit of that is supernatural. You're born again. And the rest of your new life in Christ, the rest of your new creation life, is a life where you are, yes, you're doing something, you're working out what God is working in. You're working out what God is already working in. And, and pay close attention to what Paul, in that passage I've just referenced, Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13, pay close attention to what he says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to do. The willing and the doing is you. That's you. It's not God willing and doing. No, you're the one willing and doing. But you're willing and doing according to his good pleasure by his ergon, his energy, his divine power. He works in you. That verb works is ergon. So it's the divine energy. He's working in you. He's working that in you so that you're willing and you're doing to obey him is by his power, by his strength. That's what you're acting on. His power, his strength. And I can't stress that truth enough to you. I will keep stressing that truth for as long as the Lord has me in a pulpit. I will keep stressing this because... The deception of moralism, the deception of self-righteousness is far too subtle than what we realize. That's a slippery slope that we tend as Christians, I'm talking to Christians here, we tend to slip down far too easy. It is the Lord who makes us upright. Yes, we are working out our own salvation. Yes, we are obeying him. And those are real choices we are making. Those are real things we are doing. We are, we are morally, spiritually responsible for those things. But you can't do that apart from his power. You can't do that apart from his power. What does Jesus say? And teach us in John 15. Maybe in the next 10 years we'll get there. John 15 on Sunday morning. But, but for now I'll give you a teaser. So John 15. And our Lord teaches us this. Look at verses 4 and 5 of John 15. Verses 4 and 5 of John 15. Our Lord Jesus, he says to us, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you do what? Abide in me. All right? Now look at the next verse. Verse 5. This is my favorite. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, how, can, how much can you do, Christian, apart from Christ? Nothing. Nothing. And as Luther said, what does that mean? Nothing? It means no thing. You can't do no thing apart from Christ. You cannot bear the fruit that glorifies God apart from Jesus Christ strengthening you. This is why the Apostle Paul, to go back to Philippians, but this time chapter 4 and verse 13, another very, very, very familiar text of Scripture to all Christians, okay? I can do all things, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay? All things through him who strengthens me. So, Jesus says negatively, without me, you could do nothing. Paul says positively, but through Christ, I could do how much? All things. All things. So, this takes us all the way back to our text in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 6. In all your ways, commune with him, fellowship with him. In all your ways, walk with him, and he, the Lord, he will make upright your paths. Again, this is supernatural. This is supernatural. You and I do not have the power. You and I cannot live the Christian life. Impossible. We cannot do it. I mean, you know, what was I preaching this past Sunday? Yeah, a sermon you would rather forget. But what was I preaching this, last sun- this past Sunday? Okay. You know, when, when I quoted Matthew 7, 12, whatever you want men to do to you, do likewise to them. Okay? You know, it's the golden rule, as Augustine rightly said. As simple as that, as that rule is to understand... Whatever you want men to do to you, do likewise to them. So in other words, as Lori and I have taught our kids, um, treat your brother, treat your sister how you want them to treat you. Okay? All right? From the beginning. But guess what? It takes grace to do that. It takes the power of God to do that. You can read it. You can understand it. You can say, I get it. Okay, you get it? Go practice it. Go ahead, go. Look at everybody around you because Jesus says, this is love your neighbor as you love yourself, okay? Well, who's my neighbor? Everybody. Everybody. Oh, okay, well, you put it that way. Well, that kind of makes it difficult. Yeah, because Jesus even commands us in Matthew 5 to love our enemies. Go try that one without grace. You can't. You can't. You can't do it, okay? You cannot do it. It is a supernatural life. And as I said a moment ago, I cannot stress this enough. I cannot. And I will continue continue pressing that truth on all of us. So, such 
is the life of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Such is the trust we're to show and demonstrate in every path we take. Trust that is exclusive. Trust that is entire. Trust that is exhaustive. We trust in the Lord with boundless, immeasurable faith. Unconditional. Holding nothing back. There are no reservations here. No reservations. You see, you can't trust your fellow man like that. You and I cannot, we, there's no way. I cannot even trust my spouse like that. No. You, you know why? Because she's human, fallible, and oh yeah, she's a sinner. Yeah. Just like me. So, you, so you're a fool. I mean, if you put unconditional, unreserved trust in your spouse. Get ready. You're going to be sadly disappointed because they're going to fail you big time. Big time. You know why? Because they're going to sin. No one deserves that kind of trust but God. Only God deserves that kind of trust. Only the Lord. So what then does the scripture say to us? We trust in the Lord with how much of our heart? All of our heart. All of our heart. All right. And our last consideration from Proverbs 3, 1 through 8. Let's notice now how a life of thoroughgoing godliness is marked by a Godward humility. A Godward humility. Reading verses 7 and 8 of Proverbs chapter 3. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The opening words of verse 7 are a strong admonition to all of us as it concerns the worst kind of pride. It is the pride of the know-it-all. The pride of the know-it-all. What do we read here in the text? Be not wise in your own eyes. This is the pride we see in anyone who is self-willed. Who thinks their way is not just the best way, but the only way which anyone with any sense should ever consider. This kind of pride is the height of arrogance. It is the height of arrogance. It is what we see in the proverbial scoffer, even in the fool who both disdain correction and delight only in expressing their own opinions. But such arrogance, listen, is not just resident and ruling in unbelievers. It can also be found as a besetting sin in God's own people if we're not careful and watchful to slay it by the Spirit's power through the light of God's Word. But what does God's Word exhort us to do? If, if, if we're not going to be wise in our own eyes, okay, if we're going to guard ourselves against this sin, well, then what do we do? Well, it's very direct and simple. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. What does that mean? Trust and obey God. 
That's what that means. Trust and obey God. This is the essence of humility that is godly and thereby Godward. But the growth of such humility in a Christian is not by leaning on your own understanding, but relying on God in everything and for everything. In other words, it's the opposite of everything Frank Sinatra declared in his classic song, My Way. Remember that? My Way. One stanza from that song really sums it up. Here's the man of the world. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. <laughs> what absolute arrogance, what profound stupidity. Profound stupidity. Clearly Sinatra never got the memo from the Lord himself. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Or another divine maxim, Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than him. Ouch. The end of such self-assured conceit, Proverbs 16, 18. What does it tell us? The end of such self-assured conceit will do what to you, friend? It will destroy you. It will destroy you. The only way that will bring healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones is to fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Let me say this another way, but this time from the New Testament in the words of 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that... At the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God honors the humble. He honors the grace of humility. And even when his own children, even when his own children become prideful in their moment of real stupidity, they're putting themselves at odds with God. And God, listen, he will oppose the pride he sees as much in his own children as he does in the children of the devil. Because understand this, brothers and sisters. God hates 
all sin. And when we, when we as Christians, when we commit any sin, as Jerry Bridges said and wrote in one of his wonderful books on the Christian life, he said, God hates that which you've done. He hates it. Even though you're a Christian, even though you're one of his blood-bought, born-again children, he still hates the sin you've committed, child of God. And therefore, he still stands opposed to it. Which is why he has a divine woodshed for his children. He will take you out and he will chasten you. He will discipline you. Because he opposes the sin that still remains in us all on this side of glory. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that always. Now, I say that knowing that that we're not going to remember that always. We've got to fight to remember it. It's a fight. It doesn't come automatic because we're just way too distracted. But we've got to keep this constant. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And he, the Lord, at the proper time, he will exalt you. And see, when the Lord exalts you, well, guess who gets all the praise? He does, not you. That's how that works. And that's the only place that any sensible, honest Christian wants to be. That's, that's, that's where I want to live. I want to live there. Sadly, I don't live there consistently. But that's where I want to be, consistently. Amen. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we thank you, Lord God, for the clarity. We thank you for the bluntness, the honesty of your holy word. We thank you for how you have made it abundantly clear to us this evening that there is no one but you, our great Lord and God, in whom we trust with all our hearts. We do not give that trust to anyone else, unreserved, unconditional, exhaustive, exclusive, entire. But Father, we do ask your forgiveness for every time that we have not given you such trust. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us of our idolatry where we have been guilty in trusting more in fallible, sinful creatures than we have in you, our great, eternal, sinless God. We pray, Lord, for the grace to repent of such idolatry. We pray that we'll become more, by your grace, that people of God, those disciples of Christ Jesus our Lord, who abide in full and complete reliance upon Jesus, the Lord of our life, trusting in his power, trusting in his strength, 
to make us upright, to hold us up and empower us to walk in the way that you, our great Lord and God, have called and commanded us to so walk in full obedience to you, no matter what that may cost us at every turn. Father, we thank you for such mercy and grace and kindness that you have visited us with here tonight that we would be so privileged to hear your word faithfully expounded. What a privilege because, Lord, we know that not every local church has such a mercy and kindness so given. Let us not take this gift for granted. But let us take advantage of it to our own hearts and our own personal sanctification and be obedient, Lord, unto you with what you have blessed us to hear this night from your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.